0: in uh, Genesis 41, verses 1 through 32. And let's hear the word of God. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief cup, uh, baker into custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there was no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable or appropriate answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them. For they were still as ugly as at the beginning. When I awoke, I saw also in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered thin and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears of corn, uh, sorry, good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten In the land of Egypt, the famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this was written for our instruction, that we might endure and through the encouragement of the Scriptures have hope, as the God of endurance and encouragement grant that we would see Jesus, the one in whom we hope, through the Scriptures this morning, that the Spirit would enable us to trust in him as he is presented to us in the Scriptures. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Back to a hiding place. Thought I would break it out this morning instead of going from memory. So I wanted to kind of get it right. It was May 1944. It's interesting how the the story actually unfolds the events that take place because she went into sort of great detail as to how they got a radio. Well, now the radio becomes important. They're sitting as a family by the radio, specifically for a reason. Usually they enjoyed symphonies that brought great delight to their souls. But tonight there was a message from the Prime Minister of Holland. Speaking on behalf of the Queen of Holland, he had gathered all of the people via the radio to listen to this message. The people were afraid. They knew of what was going on in Germany with their neighbor. They knew that the the ways in which Germany had, had moved into Czechoslovakia and had taken territory, all of this was stirring around them. And just as in World War I, Holland had declared its neutrality. So the prime minister began to speak. Then the prime minister's voice was speaking to us, sonorous, And soothing, there would be no war. He had had assurances from high sources on both sides. Holland's neutrality would be respected. It would be the great war all over again. There was nothing to fear. Dutchmen were urged to remain calm and to. The voice stopped. Betsy and I looked up, astonished. Father had snapped off the set, and in his blue eyes there was a fire we had never seen before. Keep that in mind. It is wrong to give people hope where there is no hope, he said. It is wrong to base faith upon wishes. There will be war. The Germans will attack, and we will fall. He stamped out his cigar stub in the ashtray beside the radio, and with it, it seemed, the anger too, for his voice grew gentle again. Oh, my dears, I am sorry for all Dutchmen now who do not know the power of God, for we will be beaten, but he will not. He kissed us both goodnight, and in a moment... We heard the steps of an old man climbing the steps to bed. Casper essentially had a nightmare. He did not know when this nightmare would come true, but he knew it would. In fact, five hours later, Betsy and Corey Ten Boom were awakened by sounds in the skies planes fighting over peaceful Holland. Because the Germans, that night, had invaded their country. Sometimes our dreams come true. Sometimes our nightmares come true. The big big idea this morning is that God controls all things for the good of his people. This is essentially Romans 8.28 in action, fleshed out in history. For us to see. So let us ponder this text before us this morning. Let us start with the notion that God directs the course of individuals according to his promises. We see right off the bat that Joseph has been, has remained in bondage, has remained in prison two full years. Remember, he had hoped that when the butler had gotten out, the cupbearer had gotten free and had, had been exalted back to his position, restored to his position. He hoped that this man would tell him, tell Pharaoh, and that he would be free. And that did not happen. And so for two more years, Joseph languished in that prison. He was probably tempted to think, where was my God? Was God working at all? What has gone on? But the God that he trusted is about to change his life forever in a very unexpected way in a way that even Joseph never could have imagined. Because the very next thing is, Pharaoh dreamed. God interrupts Pharaoh's life by interrupting his sleep. Pharaoh has a dream that he cannot shake. It has disturbed him just as the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel 2 disturbed him and he lost his sleep. I'm reminded of Corrie and Betsy the night that the bombs had begun to fall in Holland. They could not sleep. They sat and drank tea at the table just listening to what was going on all around them. And in the midst of that, she must have fallen asleep and she had a vision or a dream, we're not sure, that she recalls. And she tells her sister, I saw a wagon. And I saw all of us getting into the wagon. And we did not want to go into the wagon. And there were other people with us in that wagon, people we don't know, and that wagon was going to take us to a place we did not want to go. She had a nightmare that troubled her and troubled Betsy. A nightmare that eventually would come true. So Pharaoh is distressed. In the ancient Near East, they often believed that God spoke to kings in dreams. He himself, declared to be a god, could not understand the dream, and he's disturbed. Note the irony there. If anyone in Egypt should be able to figure this out, it should be him. And he's not. And so he calls in the magicians, the wise and skilled men, And unlike Nebuchadnezzar, tells them what the dream is. See how mean Nebuchadnezzar was? He didn't even give the guys a chance. He said, you tell me the dream. But Pharaoh was a little kinder dictator. He let them know what it was, and still they didn't know. They were unable, it says, to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And so we see that God is frustrating the gods and the priests and the wisdom of Egypt. Because he has something greater in mind. We're going to see this theme reemerging throughout Scripture, even in Egypt. Because God again is going to frustrate the gods and the wisdom of Egypt during the plagues and the Exodus. God was going to do the same thing with the wisdom of Egypt. Babylon through Daniel, which points us, all of these point us to the incredible way in which God frustrated the wisdom of man, the incarnation, and then the crucifixion. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And so God interrupts through Pharaoh's dream and basically frustrates the wisdom of Pharaoh, frustrates the wisdom of the magicians and the wise men of Egypt. He is telling them that their religious perspective, okay, God is not a pluralist, cannot answer the questions they need answered. It's not just Pharaoh and the magicians that God interrupts, but it's the chief cupbearer. In the midst of this whole thing, of course, he's one of the most influential and important people in Egypt, and he's sitting there, and he's watching what's going on, and suddenly a light bulb goes on in the cupbearer's head. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The cupbearer remembered he confesses his sins to Pharaoh. He he reminds, now, think of how dangerous this is. You're you're reminding Pharaoh of how you previously offended him. (laughs) He could throw him back in jail for all he knew, but he reminds him of what he did because that is directly connected to the dreams that he had and this Hebrew servant who heard them, who interpreted them, and it came to pass. And so he's the guy, Johnny on the spot, who now is going to let Pharaoh know that this Hebrew slave exists and he's still there because I forgot to tell you about it. Okay, in his book, um, "The Invisible Hand," R. C. plays the game of what if a, a lot of times it 's almost like a recurring theme. What if? what if? Well, what if? What if he had told Pharaoh two years earlier? What would have happened? Well, Pharaoh, perhaps hearing about his cause and that he was unjustly imprisoned, may have set him free if Joseph goes free two years earlier. Where do you think he goes? Home. That's where I'd go. If he goes home, there is no one who could interpret the dream of Pharaoh. And so we see that God directs the course of Joseph's life not according to Joseph's desire and purpose, but he continues to place Joseph in the place that Joseph needs to be to accomplish God's purposes, not just in Joseph's life, but in the lives of millions. So Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph. It's sort of like the fullness of time just happened. You know, when Jesus came at at the right time, now is the right time. Pharaoh sends for Joseph. Joseph's life is about to be redirected, interrupted. God directed all of those lives, interrupted all of those lives, just so he could get to this one life, Joseph. And by that one life would change history in numerous ways. So I thought for a moment, not the what if game, but I want you to think, how many lives or whose life did God direct and interrupt so that you yourself may have heard the good news of Jesus Christ? Maybe it was from your parents, but you know what? God directed their lives so that they would have you and that they themselves would believe in the gospel of Christ and be convinced enough to proclaim it to you. God directed the course of many people's lives, because remember, how did your parents hear it? So that you might come to faith in him. Think about how God is directing your life now and how he might be setting you up to begin to make Christ known in someone else's life. Think about that. Ponder it today. Joseph prepares, as he probably should have, by shaving. It's interesting that Moses makes an important um, mention of this detail that he shaves and he changes his clothes. He is obviously not to be brought into the presence of Pharaoh looking like a like a bag, rag-abond, uh, vagabond. That's the word I want. He's not to come looking like he's just been living in the, the gutter for six months. Okay, he has to look nice. But Moses specifically puts this in there, which to me is fairly interesting, in light of what a lot of modern <clears throat> liberal. Scholars try to do with this text what they try to do with Moses, am uh, sorry, with with uh, Daniel. Joseph. <laughs> I'm being humbled before you. It's Joseph. Okay. You read some of these scholars, and they 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 want to put Joseph in the time of the Hiscos kings. And For those of you who don't know who the Hiskos kings, I know there's at least one person here who does besides me. Okay, They are called the the shepherd kings. And what they were, they were actually Semitic people that came down and conquered Egypt for a period of time. And so the way the liberal scholar is thinking is the the only way that, that that he would ever get exalted to this position is if it was a Semitic king who would be exalting him. Well, the fact that he shaved is a little important. One of the distinctions between Semitic peoples and Egyptian peoples is facial hair. The Semitics loved a good beard. The Egyptians liked a good close shave. It's funny as I read as I read Calvin as he he talks about the Egyptians. Numerous times he brings up the word effeminate, (laughs) describing the the Egyptians. They were a little fastidious about that. They they were shaved, and instead of having colorful clothing, it was plain white clothing. And you know they're just very different culturally. And so part of what's going on, and this is not the only clue. We're going to find more throughout this text, but Joseph was raised up in the midst of most likely the 12th dynasty of the Egyptian rulers, not during the the dynasty of the Hiskos. Okay? Moses is in touch with history. He knows what's going on. Remember, he was raised in the court of the king after he was weaned. He knew his history. He didn't make this up. So anyway... Pharaoh says that you can interpret this, and I love how Joseph responds, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. The slave is bold. Remember who he is. He's talking boldly to to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He honors God instead of himself. He humbles himself. God is the one who's going to give the answer. Not me. And yet he's bold precisely because he expects the dream giver. To interpret the dream, he knows he has not been summoned accidentally, but purposefully, and that God is at work. Oh, that we would be so bold at times. And so, God is directing the course of of individual lives, including yours, for his purposes, not for yours. Let's move away from the tree and look at the forest, so to speak, because God directs history to accomplish redemption. He's not just engaged in individual lives, but he is moving all of history. He's moving nations. He's moving kingdoms to accomplish his purposes. And we see something here in verse 15 that basically the two dreams are the same. Pharaoh sees this even before Joseph mentions it to him. That these two dreams are the same thing, just told differently. It's one dream. Joseph says to him, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do, and what is significant is he uses the word Elohim. He does not use the name of any of the Egyptian gods. Elohim, the God of his fathers, is the one who is about to reveal this to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is going to, needs to know that the nightmare... It's true. It's not just he had some some bad falafel that night. This is a dream from God that he needs to hear because he needs to act upon it. And it's interesting because he stands beside the Nile, and anyone who studies Egypt knows that the Nile is the source of Egypt's power and blessing. There's no Nile, there's no crops. It would flood over every year so that they would have water for their crops and If it was a good year, things are great, okay? The Nile was seen as a god. they would worship the Nile, okay, but the Nile cannot stop what is about to happen to Egypt. And so we have first off seven good-looking, and you know what? It's funny because that's the same phrase that is used for Joseph. Hunky cows, cool, right? Um, (laughs) No, but they were good-looking cows. If you were if you were going to look at cows, you go, "That's the cow I want. That's the cow that's going to feed my family. That's a meaty cow." So we have these seven good-looking fat cows and these seven ears of grain on one stalk, and both of these point to enormous prosperity. Not a good year, but a really good year. Seven of them. Seven really good years were going to come. But then we see that the hot winds of the Sahara are going to blow across Egypt relentlessly, okay, even in the dream, the second of the two dreams, that there's one dream, God shows the instrumentality of what's going to happen because the, the grains were blighted by that east wind which blew across the Sahara. Okay? That's, God was in charge. God ordained it, but he used an instrument to accomplish it, and that instrument is, in this case, the east wind. Okay? It's, these seven years that come are going to be so bad that everyone is going to forget the seven good years. It's interesting. Because in the dream, it, it, you know, the, the symbolism there, we can almost sort of see the seven, co- the seven thin, gangly, gaunt cows eating the, the seven good cows, because cows eat, right? A different word is used with regard to the, the grain, and yet there's that picture of grain swallowing up grain. Both of of those pictures indicate that even though the seven good years are consumed, the seven bad years are unchanged. The seven gaunt cows don't become fat because they eat the good cows. They stay thin. The people are going to forget. And we have a picture of that. We sometimes forget how good we had it. We're in, I don't know what year of this recession, okay? Um, What, four, five? I am, okay? And it's not getting worse, but it's not getting any better. It's been hard. Some people forget what it was like to get a pay raise, okay? It's difficult. Savings have gotten eaten into, I am always reminded of, uh, of Habakkuk when it talks about how the locusts have eaten. What, what the locusts have eaten, God will replace. And that's kind of what I do to my savings. Lord, please replace. <laughs> All that stuff that got eaten up, put it back. Put it back. Um, we'll see what happens. Um, but you know how you forget what happens. But here's what Joseph says in a couple different ways, but he says, this thing is fixed by God. It's not accidental. It's not merely God saying what will happen, but it is saying that God has decided it will happen. Okay, well, This is God's doing, and God is going to do this now. Right after Corey told her dream to her sister Betsy, Betsy replied, as you have your reflection thought. But if God has shown us bad times ahead, it's enough for me that he knows about them. That's why he sometimes shows us things, you know, to tell us that this too is in his hands. What, the, what a great glimpse of faith. To look at that and go... This is in God's hands. Not, oh my goodness, there's no way in the world we can survive this. But to look to God and say, he is in this. He will preserve us in the midst of this. I'm reminded of Isaiah 45, which parallels a little bit Job chapter 2. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God just does not does not just claim credit for the good stuff. Okay? God says I'm also the one who brings calamity, who brings hardship. And when we try to kind of get God off the hook thinking we're we're saving God from from people not trusting Him because of calamities. We're working against Scripture. We're working against the purpose of God. We're working against what God does. His sovereignty is not limited to nice things. Okay? Do we want to live in a world where 40,000 people can die in a day and think either that was random chaos or Satan is powerful enough to do that. That's not the world I want to live in. And that's not the world of Scripture. The world of Scripture is, this is a world that God made, and God rules, and God controls, and sometimes He brings calamity in accordance with His redemptive purposes. What we do not see here is that God is saying, I'm bringing seven years of famine because you've been naughty. We do not see a hint of this as an act of judgment upon Egypt or anyone else. That's not here. But we do see, we have to recognize from this, that history is not accidental but it's purposely moving toward God's redemptive purposes. The cross of Jesus Christ spreads its shadow all through history, just as the return of Jesus sheds a shadow all across history. God is the one who brings both blessing and affliction into nations, not just individuals, but nations, into history, not meaningless, but it's moving. As my mind seeks to kind of work through all of this, I go back to the Westminster Sh- uh, Confession of Faith and it talks about the, all that God ordained is according to his holy purpose, his wisdom. There are numerous ways he could have accomplished all of this, but he chose the wisest. Course, Now you and I might look at this and go, you know, why didn't he just let, keep Joseph with his family and let them know, and so the famine kills everybody else and they take over? Wouldn't that be cool? It saved save Joseph a lot of suffering, wouldn't it? It would save future generations of Israelites suffering at the hand of the Egyptians now, wouldn't it? Why wouldn't God do that? Because they would never learn about redemption they wouldn't learn from that that they too are sinners enslaved to sin that need to be set free by God they never would learn that apart from the exodus it all goes back to redemption And so in the midst of national, worldwide crises, we need to trust Him, even when we don't understand what's going on. In the Bible I had when I was in seminary, I wrote down the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer number 28. Because life was not easy. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by His providence? we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity. And with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence that our faithful God and Father, that no creature shall separate us from His love, for all creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will they cannot so much as move. That's essentially what Betsy Ten Boom was saying. And so the love and the wisdom of God in Christ Jesus should be a, a solid footing for us in the midst of chaos. Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And what's funny is, Paul does not list a bunch of who's but a bunch of what's. Shall tribulation? Shall distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or danger? Or sword? Shall a bad recession? A great depression? Shall an election that didn't go the way you wanted it to go? Shall the government making unjust laws separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Shall cancer? Shall a drunk driver hitting a car and killing someone we love, will that separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Not according to Paul. And so we have a a, a long-term hope. We have this this hope of cosmic renewal and resurrection that sustains us through these short-term distresses. It's time to move on so I don't flip the tape. And so, you know, God is controlling all of history to save people through His Son. Which leads us to the last part of this, is that God often delivers nations to protect His people. Because that's what I was... God is telling this to Pharaoh and Egypt. God is going to deliver unbelieving Egypt so that He can protect... Israel. That's the reason God is kind and merciful to Egypt. For the sake of Israel at that point in time. For Jacob, his sons, and their sons and daughters. Okay? In other words, he is blessing them for the gospel and through the gospel. God still does this. Okay? As I mentioned... This is not declared to be a judgment, but the purpose for it was hidden from Pharaoh, but the message was clear, you better get ready. I'm reminded of uh, Corey and Betsy's brother Willem, who was a, who was a pastor, who saw it coming because he studied in G- Germany, and he got ready. He began to work on a network that would help people in the midst of this distress that was coming upon uh, Holland and, the, and greater northern Europe. And so what we see here is that God is preparing a place for Israel to prosper. He's going to move Israel from a small tribe into a great nation, but he needs a place for that to happen, and he creates that place for that, for that to happen so they do not become like Judah was, remember? Chapter 38. I think it was 38. How worldly Judah became—he had been become into the, the the practices of the Canaanites. God is going to move them out of Canaan so that they can be isolated and secure and holy for Him before they go into the promised land. Okay. Pharaoh must use wisdom to prepare for the danger that is going to happen. This is one of the purposes of government in Scripture. To exercise wisdom for the well-being of the people under their care. Sometimes we see this taking place, sometimes we don't. I, it's been well over a decade, I think, since I've seen it take place. Okay? We've seen disaster, the whole, like the whole Katrina thing. There was no wisdom in the whole Katrina thing. Okay? And it's just, ugh, mm, politics. Ugh. I just sometimes wonder if, if there's a way to find a way to mess it up, government will. But uh, sometimes government gets it right. Pharaoh is about to get it right, but we'll cover that next week. But what we see here is the mercy of God at work among those who don't even know Him and worship Him. God's going to show mercy to Egypt. Do you understand that? They don't know him. They don't worship him. They had one experience with, with this God years and years ago when Abraham went down there. That's about all they know. okay? But God protects Egypt precisely so that Israel can survive in order to provide the Redeemer who will save the nations, Jesus himself. Who bought for himself people from every tribe, nation, tongue and language? See, this all relates to Jesus. The what-if game? What if Israel's not preserved? You're lost in your sin. Not only that we see in Ephesians 1, this theme kind of also pulling through, and he put all and God the Father put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus as the head over all things to the church. So he, he was given to the church, but he was given as head over all things, which includes those things outside of the church, which is his body, the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so what the, what Ephesians 1.22 is saying is that Jesus rules all things, all nations, all peoples, all institutions, and he rules them for the good of the church. All events for the progress of the church. When we think about Jesus, as it says in Galatians, being born in the fullness of time, part of that fullness of time was that the Romans were in power. The Pax Romana was in place. What, why, who cares about that? That set the stage so that the gospel after Pentecost can leave Jerusalem and go to the ends of the earth. There's a movie that lots of people don't like called Life of Brian, and there's this one scene in Life of Brian where all of the, the, the splinter groups, are, they're gathered together. These are the insurrectionists, and they're like, so what have the Romans done for us? And one guy goes, the roads? Well, uh, besides the roads, what have the Romans done for us? The other guy, you can walk the streets at night. The aqueduct? And all of a sudden, all of these things are coming up. All of these things. The the Roman peace, although it was earned through bloodshed and warfare, brought the conditions through which the gospel could leave Jerusalem and go to the ends of the earth unhindered, aside from persecution. Okay, So God blessed Rome, of all places, heathenistic Rome, precisely so for the purposes of the gospel going out of Jerusalem. That's not the only time. The discovery of the new world. Think about that for a moment. God uses the discovery of the new world, Magellan and Columbus and all that kind of stuff, to bring the gospel to places it had never been, as far as we know. There was a whole new, The whole missionary movement rode on the back of imperialism, and imperialism was horrendous. OK? God uses sin sinlessly. He used the imperialism of Europe to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to faraway lands. That part was good. Let's not forget it. So he rules over all of these things for the well-being of the church. And at times, God protects the church through the state, but there are times in which uh, God afflicts the church through the state. There's different seasons for that. But history is the outworking of his wisdom, accomplishing his good and holy purposes and the redemption of the people that Christ purchased for him. All right. Whew. Sometimes our nightmares come true. Cancer comes, a job is lost, an economy crumbles, or a tornado wipes out your town. Those events appear completely random from our perspective, and God seems more than invisible. He seems uninvolved. He seems uncaring. He seems not existent But what we see here in this passage is that God interrupts the lives of individuals, he interrupts the lives of nations to accomplish his purposes of redemption. And we see the exalted Jesus working all things so, um, together so that individuals and nations see the need for redemption and they hear about the Redeemer at the right time. Now you can probably point to times of great affliction where you learned how important redemption was. God sent it. He worked it for good. And as Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, um, in our heads we can grasp that, but we have a hard time with our hearts grasping that. We feel the pain and we feel the confusion and we lose sight of our theology. And I ask that You would bring us back to Scripture in the midst of those troubling times that we would see again that we can accept good and affliction from You, that we can bless You and worship You in the midst of our hardship, that You are at work. You are working to do good to us in all things, both blessing, prosperity, and hardship that you are working that because you love us in Christ Jesus. And so help us to entrust ourselves into your care, to calm our hearts with this truth, that we might be fearless in the midst of um, affliction, patient, and also grateful in the midst of prosperity. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.